around here. Captain! Signatures detected. Shield up. Signatures detected. Context Southeast Command. What's happening? Context Southeast Command. Delay that order. Context Southeast Command. This is the captain. Context Southeast Command. Get out of my chair. 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 We have engaged the Klingons. Klingons. Welcome to The Greatest Discovery. It's a new Star Trek podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison. The new Star Trek today is the halfway point. It's episode five of Star Trek Picard. Yeah, it sure is. Adam, did you know that there is a novel that tells the story of the Romulan evacuation? Is this the novel that I saw in the airport a couple days ago with uh, with Picard on the cover? Yeah, it's called Picard, The Last Best Hope by Una McCormick. How about that? Would you be surprised to hear that I have consumed this novel recently <laughs> and have some thoughts? Uh, I mean, I would be surprised not that you would be interested or that you would do it. It's that... The thing that I'm most surprised about is that you would have the free time to. So, well, a, congratulations. Uh, a number of uh, of events conspired to uh, make this possible. I had to go uh-huh. to the Bay Area for a funeral over the weekend. Mm-hmm. You and I were both funeral buddies recently. Yeah, yeah. When you're uh, when you're co-host with someone, uh, so many of your things start to sync up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, All the deaths you're... in your family start to. Right. <laughs> start to happen yeah. at the same time <laughs> that's what people don't tell you when you start doing a podcast with someone yeah yeah uh i don't know why we were su- surprised we were texting like hey man i was just at a funeral today pretty bummed out oh yeah me too <laughs> yeah yeah but i was uh i had to uh, do it as a drive and i happened to be looking at my at my books app on my phone and uh and I noticed then in the audiobook section this book, and the drive from my house to where the funeral was was about five and a half hours. The book, eleven hours. Oh, you could crush that. I'd be a fool not to take this time to to take this book down in audiobook form. My first ever audiobook. And using that equation, you wouldn't even have to uh, to go one point five time, like, <laughs> like the monsters out there who who speed listen to podcasts. Yeah, I have to ask this question, Ben, and I hate I'm gonna hate it as soon as I put it out there. But is it canon? I don't know. I mean, it's there are things that are planted in this book that were paid off in this episode in a way that make me hmm. think that okay, it is all but canon. But I don't know. Um, yeah, like I, I would recommend reading it in between episode five and episode six if somebody is like precious about spoilers. Huh. All right. Well timed then. You learn some stuff that, uh, you know, you'd have privileged knowledge of what's going on before, uh, before now. Is there one person reading the whole thing, or is it read by the actors, or is it read by different actors? It's read by somebody named Robert. Petkoff, who I think has done audiobooks for other Star Trek books, and he actually had like a a pretty decent Picard voice. Choose your course wisely now. That's great. Yeah, and and I thought I thought he actually like was pretty great at it. Um Picard seems really hard to do. I mean, you and I do it terribly. Yeah. We know we know that. He's not nailing it. It's not an impression. It just gets closer to Picard than the way he reads Agnes Girardi, for example. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, like it basically starts when they when the Federation learns about the supernova and roughly ends with the uh, Federation deciding to stop attempting to rescue the Romulans. Uh, so, so it stops at the at the Mars attack, right? So okay. yeah, like it's like the Mars attack and like the, you know, immediate aftermath of that, and that's the I end. See. So it's 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 a bit of a bummer, <laughs> I will yeah. I will say, um, but there's some interesting and fun details. Like one of the earliest things that happens in the conversation about Picard getting the job of uh, of being in charge of the Romulan spacelift is who is going to become the captain of the E. Yeah. Uh, any guesses on who gets that gig, Adam? Who gets the captain of the E job? D- just the way you ask the question makes me want to go away from the obvious. Beverly? It is Captain Worf. 
survey says Captain Worf is the is the new captain of the E. Wow. This is done partly because Picard argues that it, he's the person in line that deserves it most and partly because there's a sort of a political message like the the Klingons used to be our enemies and now a Klingon is the captain of our flagship. Wow. One of the characters in the book is the Romulan space scientist who discovered the supernova and he is like definitely I, I don't think explicitly written this way, but I think definitely kind of uh, autism spectrum kind of character, mm-hmm. and uh, is very focused on his on his work and not on the comings and goings of the world around him. And his story is very tragic and sad. Wow. Uh, a couple of things we learn about uh, Agnes Girardi in this book because she is one of the main characters. Uh, right. She's actually an MD. She, before she came to work at the Daystrom Institute with Maddox, she had a medical degree. So, Interesting. Uh, so Dr. Girardi uh, may be on, on the path to being a doctor. Um, one thing we learned in this episode is that she had a bit of a romance with Maddox. Yeah. One thing that they go into great detail in the book is that she was like fairly crucial in the development of the synths. And the synths were developed specifically to man the shipyards at Utopia Planitia because they had a problem of not having enough people to build the amount of ships that they needed to rescue the number of Romulans that they needed to rescue. Right. So, which I, I think is an interesting detail because there's a lot of sci-fi about like machines rising up because they are, in fact, slaves. And mm-hmm. this book is very careful to describe them as non-sentient. And there's a lot of people that suspect something, so, some sort of foul play was involved with why they flipped, uh, specifically Raffi. And Raffi is like probably the saddest character in the book because she um, is in Romulan intelligence at the beginning of the book and gets kind of tapped on the shoulder to be Picard's number one in the in the mission, which takes years and years, like the the book spans, uh, you know, four or five years or something like that. And wow. over that four or five years, she's out in Romulan space, warping around with Picard while her husband and son are back at home. And basically her marriage is, is crumbling and her relationship with her son is ending over the course of the book. And Jeez. That's a pretty a pretty tough thing, but I don't know. And then and then there's this whole element of like the Federation Council. Like one of the main characters is a, a member of the Federation Council who's like newly elected from a border world who resents the fact that Starfleet is mobilizing all these resources to save the Romulans when border worlds don't necessarily get everything that. Uh, that like big planets in the center of the Federation get. Wow. So there's like, you know, some modern comparisons to be made in terms of like grievances about immigrants and the, you know, like when Picard starts, uh, you know, bringing ships full of Romulan refugees across the neutral zone to, you know, there are worlds that are like more and less receptive to having refugees uh, on them. And when that starts happening, like he basically like unilaterally ends the neutral zone in the novel. And that <laughs> becomes like this huge political football and uh, and and winds up being a big part of why the Federation is prepared to just stop the mission when the Mars attack happens. Wow. Yeah. Like the disillusion of the neutral zone is a is a plot point in this episode. Yeah. Also. That's yeah. Interesting. Is there much cutting back to the E? With Worf in command, like who's his XO? Well, that like they want the E nowhere near any of this situation because the E is a provocative ship in the yeah. minds of Romulans. So yeah. Picard's like, like when he's offered the job, he's like, "Cool, let me get back to the E. I'm gonna get started right away." And they're like, "Do they still drive it around with its nose smashed in as a as a message?" Yeah, no mention of the Remans in the book at all, huh. which I thought was uh, surprising. I wonder whatever wow. happened to those guys. Remember.
It sounds like it was worth reading or listening to. I really liked it. I think uh, I think Una McCormick is a, a good writer. It's it's very like like it makes you think a lot about you know like I think that all of the issues are like very obviously kind of a sci-fi version of a modern uh, mm-hmm. issue, which is like not always attractive to me. Like I do really like the part of Star Trek where it's like, hey, it's a socialist post scarcity utopia where the problems are like super different and unrelatable. <laughs> right. It's nice to just turn off your, your present day mind a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But this like, I think to its credit really made you see the humanity and people that made a different call about a thing than you probably would. Yeah. I think people would like it. This is the first Star Trek book I have ever read aside from the comic books we read occasionally on this show. What? Yeah. Man, I was the I was the kind of nerd that read Star Trek the Next Generation books from the time that they started making them. Yeah. I read I read the first 20 books. Wow. In, in school, and it was it was one of the main reasons that uh, <laughs> I was ostracized the way that I was. <laughs> I mean, you tell yourself that I was reading many grade levels higher than than my actual grade, and I chose to read Star Trek books. <laughs> well, you, you may not choose to read this one because um, Jaban and Laris are not really in it at all. Oh, fuck that. <laughs> Uh, but you know who is is uh, is Zani. She is like a a big recurring character, and uh, oh, cool. she's described as kind of like one of the only people Picard meets in all of his dealings with Romulans that is like a kindred spirit. Well, uh, you and I both know I have a great big drive down the coast coming up, and uh, this sounds like something I'd like to listen to for part of that. I think that'd be time well spent. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna listen to it. Oh, cool. If only a, uh, a an audiobook company would sponsor our program. <laughs> yeah. That'd be mm. nice. Uh, Someday. Yeah. Do you, do you want to uh, get into the episode we came to review here today, Adam? Sure do, Ben. It's Star Trek Picard, Season 1, Episode 5, Stardust City Rag. Uh, this is a Frakes episode, and uh, Frakes loves to open a Star Trek thing on extremely brutal eye trauma. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, and this episode is no exception. Yeah, it's really true. Um, I looked at the crew list for this episode and realized that its editor had a bunch of reps in this season of Star Trek Picard, also a number of eps on Star Trek Discovery, and crucially, was an editor of a couple of Saw films. Wow. And that really made a lot of sense in context. <laughs> Boy, I uh, shot a documentary about maternal health care one time, and I was in the OR and filmed a, a cesarean section operation, and Filming it, I was fine. And I was like worried going in because I had never like been in an operating room before or, you know, been around much blood or whatever. It's the one place you don't want to get an erection. <laughs> uh, well, they put scrubs on you, so it's it's pretty easy to hide behind all the kind of drapey fabric. But um, editing that footage was very hard for me because... You want to use a down resolution proxy, yeah. ideally, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go four eighty on that. It was much harder to edit than it was to shoot, and I, I've I've always thought about that. Like the the layer of abstraction uh, makes a big difference. Uh, the editor of this episode is Andrew Coots, uh, whose last name is the same as Emily Coots, the actor on Star Trek Discovery. I couldn't find anything that indicated they were. Uh, they were family. Interesting coincidence there. Uh, she plays Detmer. Oh. Detmer to Owo. She's the D to the Dowo. <laughs> wow. Um, well, uh, yeah, this is Ichib getting his, his eye uh, extracted. It's a Borg eye. Black eye, like a doll's eye. Which we discover when it comes out and we see that it's connected by electrical cables to the inside of his head. 
Now, it doesn't look like there's a grounding cable on this frog eye. <laughs> We're going to want to remove it and install a proper receptacle so it's code approved. First, we're going to go around to the back, find the breaker, and turn <laughs> off the entire circuit. That way, we'll be safe from electrocution as we dismantle this living bug. Uh, I, Ben, have not watched any of Star Trek Voyager, but what I know about each ship is that he's sort of the Wesley of that show, right? Like he, yeah. he entered kind of midstream and beca- became sort of a beloved character. He's a late-breaking Wesley. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think what I remember is that after Seven of Nine has been around for a while, they come across some some kid Borgs that they're able to right. be Borg, and then you know they're. I think some of them are able they're able actually actually to find their original families or their original species, but others are not, they're not, and uh, yeah. Icheb comes back with them. Icheb is in such bad shape that he asks Seven to uh, take him to a farm. To live out the rest of his days. Yeah, well, he's going to be much happier there. There's a lot of room to run around. and Yeah. Pretty dark tone setter for this app. Yeah, indeed. And uh, it's it's uh, punctuated by Seven basically, uh, you know, referring to each app as her child. There's a gleeful counterpoint to this scene where, like, the surgeon is is almost happily dismembering him. Uh, like the surgeon has a personality about it that was disturbing, and also yeah. that that outshot revealing kind of a coat hanger full of Borg body parts. There, I mean, this was this is the facility that did a lot of this, right? Purpose built for uh, to, for taking Borgs apart, and there's been some talk of that being something that the Romulans are up to as well, right? Although they seem to be doing it in a more humane way, but I'm wondering what people are doing with these Borg parts. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you definitely get a sense that they have great value in this in this time, but uh, unclear as to exactly how or why. This was 13 years ago. Yeah. So we're going to bounce around through time a little bit in this episode. I think it's also interesting to me that the planet was called Vergessen, which is German for forget. Huh. Like in a in a German version of this episode, are they going to call that something else? Or is that what it's supposed to be called? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Uh, no surprise what the Germans get up to when they get out into space. Oh, geez. <laughs> Come on. Not all Germans, Ben. <laughs> That's what I'd say. So we move ahead in time. We are now two weeks in the past of the of what current time is on the Star Trek Picard show. Uh, we're now on Free Cloud, and specifically the Stardust City Bar. There we meet uh, Vajazel and Mr. Vup. And this this got to be, I like I know how it's spelled, and I also know how it sounds. How how is this not a temporary name that that snuck through? Vajazel, really? Yeah, is Bejazel or Vajazel worse? Uh. Let's like let's try and like hit right in the middle of those two. I mean, what's great about her name and her appearance is that like she's wearing the the flesh colored cat suit that's covered with with little gems. I mean, you could assume that that the name is accurate, right? She gives uh, big Dabo girl vibes, but she's she's running a uh, sinister criminal empire from <laughs> from what we can tell. Yeah, Mister Vut being her heavy. Like, yeah, he might as well be random task here. <laughs> Who throws a shoe? I really liked her costumes. I thought like the the materials and like she has like at one point she has like a huge collar that's like super mm-hmm. three dimensional and see through, so you can see like all the structure in it. And uh, I just thought that was like really like next level spacey costume work, you know? Yeah, I think the costume tech has come a long way from a show like TNG. Yeah, it's just like. Put them in like a baseball shirt that's made out of glittery fabric. Right. Or something that's so form-fitting that it's almost pornographic, like like right. you can see inside of a person. Like, <laughs> that was a mistake that was made in TNG also. Yeah. It's good, and it's tasteful for what it is. Yeah. Uh, we actually meet Ma- Maddox in this scene. He uh, narrowly escaped his lab as it was being molecularly destroyed by the Tal Shiar. 
Bejazel, you know, makes a show of taking pity on him, but really she is uh, interested in selling him to the Tal Shiar because the Tal Shiar want him. A little unclear what their relationship was prior to that. This is not throwing any shade at all at John Ailes portraying Bruce Maddox here, but for a moment, were you expecting and disappointed in the idea that we didn't get a Brian Brophy here reprising his role? I was a little disappointed. I wonder if, I wonder why it wasn't. I wonder why too. I I mean, I don't know. I don't know if there's any story to it. I think many times, like I looked at, uh, at Brian Brophy's IMDb, like it does not appear that he is a working actor as of the last six years. So maybe he just retired. Hmm. Maybe he's not in the game anymore. And, and that's all it was. Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe it was a logistics thing. I think that the guy they got was, it. you know, looks the part. Hard agree. Yeah. It's not like uh, one of those like ones where they just recast a role with somebody that's like, that doesn't look anything like the person that we're talking about. <laughs> Again, like I bring it up not to criticize the choice, but but to but to also say like this is a show that sort of relishes in its surprise we brought back the real person effect very often. And this is I think one of the choices they they made in not doing that, and I think it's worth uh interrogating. Yeah. Because you are conscious of your existence and actions. She pulls a uh, a trick beverage on him and he passes out. And uh, she uh, says they're going to have to cut a deal with the Tal Shiar for this guy. You don't want to drink Cosby's on Planet Free Cloud. <laughs> uh, we come back from the opening credits with Picard uh, in his chateau <laughs> watching watching some promo for Free Cloud, uh, mm-hmm. which is pornographic enough that he's like, uh, quick, quickly trying to scramble to close the window and Seven of Nine comes in. Right. <laughs> like, uh, uh, I'm just uh, looking up some YouTube videos. I don't know what, the, I don't know how that popped up. <laughs> it, uh, it's suggested later on that Free Cloud targets its advertisements to you to such a degree that it knows your interests. Yeah. And, uh, and what you may be into. Like, it's just. <laughs> Admiral Picard, has it been a while since you felt a full and large erection? (laughs) Would you like to? Nearly consequence-free. Free Cloud has the facilities to help you achieve that, and also doctors to see if your erection lasts longer than four hours. (laughs) It's cool. I like this little ready room that Picard's got. He seems to have some mixed feelings about it. Uh, Seven kind of makes fun of, of the environment. Yeah, you know, she's kind of one of these people who has an opinion of Picard. He's He's got yeah. a rep that he is living with, and this is not an episode where Picard is in the ball-kicking machine. Right. It's not the ep where he's going around apologizing to everybody for something. Yeah. And I think the, like, nuanced version of of that backstory that you get from the book that I read has helped me understand that a lot more, but... I like that Seven is like aware of it and kind of flips the you're a quitter shit at him, but not yeah. to the extent that she's like got zero respect for him or anything. And and when she finds out that he's out here doing something selfless, that's not about like adding to his legend or digging himself out of a hole or whatever, it, it does kind of, you, you can see something turn in her. She, uh, She's surprised and intrigued by what what he says. Yeah, there's no like greater glory associated with what's happening here. And there's sort of a a mutual respect in this scene too. Like Picard has complicated feelings about the Fenris Rangers, but ultimately comes down on the side of of respecting the game. Like this is an area of space and getting back to the idea of of there not being a neutral zone anymore. Like it's an area that doesn't really have any laws or order. And then the absence of that, the Rangers sort of act as a militia enforcing their own sense of justice to things out there. And this is something that Picard can get with. They don't appear to be like Maquis adjacent in the way that that Picard would definitely not like, you know? No, I I got the sense she's much more like a uh, like a sheriff's deputy in a western kind of a character. Right. Yeah. I'll take another one of these. This is a really fun 
scene because there's two things happening simultaneously. There's Seven and Picard getting reacquainted, and there's also Raffi and Rios talking about how weird it is that there are two XBs on their ship conspiring in another room. And Rios's epiphany happened at almost the same time as mine, which is like, as much as we make fun of Picard for being an ex-Borg and being responsible for the many atrocities that occurred <laughs> as Locutus, like there are still people who have to live and work around him with that knowledge. Right. And that's got to feel weird. It hit me like, oh, like people are watching this show that haven't watched TNG or Voyager yeah. or one or the other or both, you know, like the the show can't assume you know anything about these characters, you know? There's such a like great amount of creative tension in the whole thing because there's that and there's also the desire that the viewer has for these two characters to relate to each other in the obvious way. And to start fucking and make XB babies. <laughs> like Picard has been alone in the universe for so long in in his experience and here is the one person that can relate to him on that very specific level yeah. of trying to get over the great trauma that they have. And they don't give you that here. Yeah. It, it makes you wait. And I think that's, I think that's good. I agree. We see a little uh, home video from uh, a time that uh, Dr. Gerardi and her boo, Bruce Maddox, made some, some chocolate chip cookies together. It's always a cute hang. I was way off about what I thought their relationship would be. When uh, when they started smooching, I was like, what? what? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> oh. I wondered if we were going to, because like, I, I read that book or I, I listened to that book like uh, before we saw this and uh-huh. I wondered if I was going to have to like withhold that knowledge when we, when we talked about this episode, because right. like they definitely start their relationship kind of in a like professor student orientation, yeah. which is fucking wild. Like <laughs> it's very uncomfortable. I mean, you read the book. What did it start from a like Bruce Bangs as TA kind of experience, or or was it just like two coworkers by like by virtue of all the time spent together eventually get close? You know, he has to teach grad students as part of his uh, gig at the at the Daystrom Institute, mm-hmm. and he thinks they're all bozos who are just you know taking his class to get the credit so that they can get on with their careers. And she's the only one that actually like really cares about the area of Android research he's interested in. Right. And so they start like getting coffee together and yeah, uh, and slowly fall in love over the course of. You start taking your breaks with someone. I think that that starts you off on the path. Yeah, and and she's like starstruck when she first meets him, but then gets to gets to snogging with him eventually. Bruce Maddox may be a genius when it comes to uh, to cybernetics, but uh, he did not brown his butter for those chocolate chip cookies, Ben, and you and I both know yeah. uh, they're just not going to be as good. I wonder if there is a, an analog to that when it comes to his synths. Did you not brown their butter first? Is that why <laughs> they went on the killing spree? Yeah. That's my film paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you get... <laughs> <laughs> when you get one of those uh, too light of color chocolate chip cookies, you can tell that the Conclave of Eight had something to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> Who are the Conclave of Eight? Like the Pentaveret from So I Married an Axe Murderer? <laughs> it's like the 24th century colonel. <laughs> oh, you're going to buy my chicken. Oh. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> On the surface of Free Cloud, we get a really fun descending establishing shot that is like just a feast for the Star Trek trivial mind. Uh, like the Mott's Hair Emporium, the Quark's yeah. Bar. Uh, really fun eye candy here. Uh, Quark gets a couple of references in this episode. Like part of, part of how they're running this op is that Raffi has been able to kind of gin up false paperwork for Captain Rios, who is going to be portraying a uh, like a, a deal broker who is going to offer Vajazzle a an alternative deal to the Tal Shiar one that she's trying to work on. The storytelling in this episode pivots out of linear 
and into a sort of intercutting sequence here that also made me think of a lot of like Ocean's Eleven and the way that those movies tell that story. Like we're describing the spy action in the present and also cutting to the future and back and forth. And if I'm not mistaken, Ben, I think this is something that Saw films do too. Oh, really? Right? Like we're like we're in the room with the Saw, but we're cutting back to the investigation or the plan. Oh, interesting. Like, I think this is a quality of those films as well. I have not watched any of those movies because they're too scary for me. Yeah. I mean, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. <laughs> they're, I mean, I'm not a fan, but I, I will admit to seeing some of them. Wow. Uh, yeah, anything, any like uh, tooth-related scary oh. thing is really not for me because I, uh, when I was like three years old, I was like climbing on a boulder in uh, Mosswood Park in Oakland and I slipped and banged a tooth. And, oh. uh, and the uh, the entire genre of tooth trauma is just far too upsetting for me. And I think like the first trailer I saw for a Saw thing was somebody with their jaw wired shut and I was just like, nope, 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 no. It's so fucking weird to hear you tell that story and know without experiencing it what a tooth getting broken by a stone sounds like. Like, I, I don't know how I know that, but I know it. Ugh. Yeah. Gross. I don't, I don't remember anything about it, but it definitely like is a formative trauma for me. <laughs> So, Ben, let's see if we can describe what's going on here together, because there's a lot of jumping around and there's a lot of exposition here, like and, and a lot of, of terminology and jargon. So yeah. the idea of there needing to be a facer to broker a deal is a big part of it, because on a planet like Free Cloud, there's a lot of exchange type business happening, but you can't actually bring the real people to the planet to do these deals. You need a facer. A facer is the proxy for the deal being done, right? Yeah, and uh, and so that's the role that Rios is going to play. He gets dressed up as a uh, as a you know like a groovy a groovy daddy with a you know crazy big hat and a fur coat and sunglasses. Um, <laughs> the role that Seven of Nine is going to play is that of bait mm-hmm. because the. Uh, she knows that uh, Vajazzle is a is a Borg pieces dealer, mm-hmm. and uh, is going to be more interested in Seven of Nine's, uh, you know, latent implants than sh- she is in whatever deal she can get out of the Tal Shiar for Maddox. Don't you believe the jumping around here in this sequence is an editing sleight of hand that that is used to firewall the idea of cheese? Like, I think if we go through this scene linearly, instead of how mm-hmm. we do, we get like the dress up scene and the prepare to go scene. And I think, unfortunately, we'd live with the pimp costume long enough to start laughing at it. Right. But because we're cutting around to the different characters and their motivations and we're getting the backstory and the jargon and stuff, I think there's really effective uh, sleight of hand there to get you out of whatever cynicism you may feel for how cheesy this could be. I think it worked. Well, they may, yeah, like they, they acknowledge the corniness in the dress up, uh, vert parts of the scene. Yeah. But when you see him walking through the bar, blending right in, yeah, like both standing out and blending in at the same time, you're like, oh, it's actually like kind of effective for the thing that they're describing in the exactly in the clothes try-on. We need to be down in that in that club as soon as possible. As soon as we see these people in the costumes, we need to be there so that we don't sit in in the cheese any longer than we have to. Tell you what, Adam, that Tim Tibby Lagoon looks like my kind of drink. <laughs> Two umbrellas, though. How are you supposed to get in there for the sucking? I don't know. <laughs> I like the idea that that, uh, that that would be the specificity of your order. It's not shaken, not stirred. It's not um, a twist instead of an olive. It's, uh, yeah, put, put a second <laughs> cocktail umbrella in there. You know, when I, when I saw this order, my mind immediately went to Star Trek Las Vegas and how many people are going to absolutely waste those little paper umbrellas during the convention, <laughs> like everyone's going to order two umbrellas, it's going to be an atrocity. Here's the problem, Adam. That stupid hotel 
makes no effort to theme itself for the convention that's happening. So there won't be Tim Tibby Lagoons available for sale anyway. Yeah, but they, they make a tiki drink there. That's what I'm saying. Like that little tiki bar yeah. is going to is gonna run out of umbrellas. Is, gonna, is what's going to happen. I'm bringing my own umbrellas just to be safe. Mm. I mean, I always do. So uh, Vup is a really interesting character because he's got this hypersensitivity to smell that is so attenuated that he can smell you lying, he can smell your breakfast, he can smell who you're fucking. Like, yeah. he is the security system that they need to get around. And uh, the the mist sprayer that reveals the lasers in the in the room that they're trying to break into <laughs> is the hypo spray that, like, shuts off Rios's pheromones for lying. That's So they pump him up with that before they send him down there. Yeah. I got the sense that he was a little bit drugged yeah. because it does show him like it does show it like kicking in yeah. on him. I like that a lot. Um, but uh, yeah, this uh, this drug does help him pass the smell test. He convinces Vup that he really does have a tempting offer for Vup's employer. I really think that Santiago Cabrera is doing the heavy lifting of this entire season. I mean, because he's acting drunk here. In addition to doing all the EMH stuff yeah. and playing his main character. Yeah, like this is this has just gotta be like the funnest gig for an actor Absolutely. to get offered. Yeah. Picard is having his own kind of fun, especially in this episode, uh playing the uh the eye patched French accented uh X B trafficker. And that's uh probably the silliest we've seen Picard ever act, right? When he's like doing a little bit of scenery chewing. Talking about uh, being appropriately sinister or whatever. I wish I had a chance to know that Jean-Luc Picard. I think he's played loud and flamboyant before, but I, you can tell he definitely relishes uh, this moment as an actor. Yeah. And then uh, uh, Seven of Nine's setup is that she gets trick handcuffs. Mm -hmm. And uh, Elnor's setup is that he gets a, a bomber jacket and no secret identity <laughs> is really disappointed but he's very new to this whole like world of deceiving people he is really innocent and they're really leaning into making elnor kind of the c3po of of the crew he's he's just sort of quippy and and uh, innocent yeah he's ninja c3po yeah yeah and the plan is once they get their hands on bruce maddox Girardi is going to be on the La Serena ready to beam them out. Right. And they have a little device. The, this this bar is uh, behind some shields. So they need a, a pattern enhancing device uh, to tunnel them back out uh, at such time as they leave. And, uh, and Girardi is going to be manning that station, which is a bit confusing until we discover that Rafi is uh, saying her goodbyes here. Yeah, we cut back in time to before this mission, and we see the goodbye that Rafi and Picard have in this scene. It seems like it's going to be a permanent deal. Like, a big part of her resentment of Picard comes from the fact that her commitment to the mission of rescuing the Romulans came at the cost of her family. And, uh, you know, like, she, she took this big career move for... That, you know, played directly into her talents and was uh, the right career move for her. And it fucking completely fell apart on on them both in the end. But, you know, the cost, the the emotional cost to her was way, way higher. And so this this brief moment when they're on the transporter pad and he's, he's saying, I really sincerely hope you find what you're looking for is uh, really poignant, I thought. Rafi is feeling this moment more than Picard in a way that uh, that Laris felt Picard's departure more than he did back then. I think there's something tropey about an older character feeling wistful and overly emotional about their circumstances at any given time. Picard as a character does not feel like he's subject to that. Like he's, I'm I'm struggling to think of a moment on the Star Trek Picard show, especially where he's where he's that vulnerable in these in these moments. He's very mission-oriented. Yeah. This guy left his dog behind without so much as a goodbye. Yeah. 
I I think one of my favorite shots in this whole episode is the ECU on Rios's pimp ring running the transporter. It's awesome. <laughs> you don't see that very often on Star Trek. The next scene is the emotions at 11 scene of Raffi reintroducing herself to her son, Gabe, who we get the sense she has not seen in a very long time. And this is the person that she's been looking up over the course of the episode. She's been, uh, you know, like like when you yeah. walk into someone's cubicle and they and they minimize the window that that they had up like she does that a couple times this app and all of those screens show uh information on gabriel I've, I've seen this actor before in something but i can't remember what it was book smart is what he was in oh, and yeah. he's also the son of cuba gooding jr no kidding yeah about that wow mason gooding it surprised me to hear her say that she was clean um it implies that she's been addicted to something in a in a pathological way, which, you know, as as far as we've ever known, has been mostly a solved problem in the Federation. They were very subtle about her addiction in this episode. Like when that pop up came up for the snake weed, uh, she she was very hostile about the pop up, and she also chastised Rios for trying to light up his cigar in front of her. Yeah, in an earlier scene, and those. Those were super subtle indications that she was like struggling to kick the habit and and didn't need those kind of reminders. I guess so. But the problem to Gabriel is split. It's not only his mother's addiction, it's her addiction to conspiracy. It's a hell of a combination. Because it does not take very much at all for those accusations to be leveled, and then that really sets Raffi off. It was a crackpot! That attack was not what it seemed. And that's the tipping point. It it elevates their conflict that they had many years ago into the now. Like it totally stirs it back up again. Yeah. I mean, it seems like the Romulan supernova potentially being, uh, having been engineered and the synth attack on Mars potentially having been engineered are both, uh, you know, are both possibilities that are are hovering over this entire series at this point. And uh, I'd be surprised if one or both of those weren't confirmed. (laughs) Right, right. And there's just the resentment, like betting the whole thing, Gabriel's resentment about a parent choosing anything besides uh, being a parent to them as a priority is is the foundation for it all. I mean, it matters specifically what she chose instead, but generally that's grounding all of it for them. It's that she chose yeah. someone besides him to care about. You hear this shit all the time in TNG, like, oh, like this is Starfleet. Like they know the risks they signed mm-hmm. up for. It's like, yeah, but your kid didn't sign up for it. Right, right. <laughs> and there are a couple of episodes of TNG that, you know, tackle that idea. Uh, you know, this is uh, this is another version of that story. The, uh, the duty over personal commitments having become a real point of pain in in, uh, in Gabriel's life. The reunion does not go well, Enterprise. Like, things really go <laughs> into the ditch here quickly. I mean, there's a moment where, you know, often, like, if you're going to fight with someone, a third person will arrive and, and sort of diffuse it because you're not going to fight in front of the other person. And, and this third person is is the mother of Gabriel's child and she's pregnant and she emerges from an exam room and it's like that awkwardness of this is a person that Rafi's never met carrying her grandchild. Her Romulan (laughs) daughter-in-law. Yeah, carrying her grandchild who clearly she, at this point in time, doesn't have a good chance of having a relationship with. And so there's that awkwardness of, of like, the daughter's like, well, are you going to stick around and have dinner? And Gabriel's like, nope, she's just on her way. I am really worried about Gabriel's relationship with this woman because, you know, communication is key. Yeah. I mean, that's something you talk about in the car on the way home, I think. Yeah, you better. <laughs> yeah. Like, in my mind, that's like a fifth or sixth date conversation, not a, you know, you're in your fourth trimester and we're visiting the family <laughs> planning clinic on free cloud conversation yeah like everything you know about free cloud would seem to indicate that like that's a place where you might not want to raise a family so why are they there attempting to do that 
Are they just on vacation having their baby moon, you think? Yeah, maybe. Huh. Good for them. <laughs> I don't know, man. Like, there's plenty of people living happy suburban lives in Las Vegas that don't ever go to the Strip. So, <laughs> yeah. Good point. Elsewhere, Bejazzle is inspecting the goods, and those goods are seven. But uh, she is someone that Bejazzle calls Annika, and this suggests a level of intimacy between them that is fairly surprising to the other people uh, on this on this mission. But in just a second, it turns into a Mexican standoff. Like as soon as you realize that this is happening. It's phasers drawn. We're supposed to be fucking professionals. Seven was using Picard to get to Bejazzle. And uh, <laughs> I just keep laughing at that. Name. Yeah. It's, it's so crazy. Uh, yeah. She's she's here for one thing, Adam. She's here for Rewenge. What does it mean? It means Omerta. It means Rewenge. I want to hear Jonathan Frake say that. Like, I know there's set footage of him directing actors and you know he's using character names, and I just want to hear yeah. his voice say that word. <laughs> and I want that to be the sound that plays uh, when I get a text message, even though my phone is on permanent vibrate and will never make a sound ever, ever. On the ship, uh, something very important happens here. It's that we learn that the EMH appears when it senses physical distress from someone on the ship. And so... As Dr. Girardi is freaking out about shit going down on the surface, the EMH shows up and is like, hey, you seem stressed out. What can I do? Its assessment of what's going on with her almost makes it back to the actual Captain Rios right. uh, before she shuts it down. And it seems like uh, Dr. Girardi may have something to hide. This, is, this seems more like, like more than just nerves about working the transport. Right. Right, and Rios is trying to kind of calm her down because, uh, you know, her ability to beam them back is sort of mission critical <laughs> at this point. Yeah. And she's so flustered that she's not using good radio jargon. So Picard is able to uh, talk Seven of Nine off the precipice uh, by, you know, making the moral case against revenge. But the thing that really uh, th that really gets her to take a step back from what she's about to do is Captain Rios going like, hey, actually, like, from a tactical standpoint, we are really going to be fucked if you do this revenge right now mm -hmm. because, you know, the people that work with Bajazzle are going to be pissed and come after us all. So please don't do the revenge. And so, you know, cooler heads prevail. It's a conversation that happens while Seven's hand is around Bajazzle's throat. Yes. And so... The, the logistical problem of revenge uh, prevents her from doing it. So, so as Seven and Picard are, are arguing over the, uh, the relative value of revenge, I think there's a really interesting visual language happening here. There's, we're cutting from light to dark backgrounds, right? When we cut over to Seven, she's very strongly backlit. And Picard is in yeah. the dark. And I think that's not suggesting a way of being like in a good or evil kind of way, it's suggesting a, a level of knowledge, right? As in Seven has all the knowledge and Picard is in the dark. Yeah, I think that's true. They get everyone out of there. They beam back up to the ship uh, with Maddox and um, Seven of Nine is like, hey, uh, thanks for getting me there. <laughs> Sorry, I went a little crazy down there. And Picard's like, well, no, no problem. Like uh, we all got through it. Do you need a ride? And she says, no, uh, the... Uh, the rangers are coming to pick me up. So uh, I will take a couple of your phasers, but I uh, I don't need to go with you. And he's like, oh, you know, take anything you need. And uh, she has stuck the pattern enhancer in her pocket, and it enables her to beam right back down to the bar where she starts wasting Bejazzle's uh, guards. This is the moment that you wanted from the start, not just... Seven's application of revenge, but that moment of intimacy between Picard and Seven where yeah. they both agree that they've never been the same since, and it's a struggle every day. I really love that scene. Yeah, and I really liked in the score when she beams down, They uh, there's a little dust uh, dusting of the Voyager theme as she, as she beams off the ship. Hi. 
Bejazzle gets her bad guy monologue and Seven blows her away because her rifles are set to gore. Yeah, her rifles are set to campfire. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> that is a, a rough way to go out. It's the last we see Seven and I hope she's not dead. I hope she comes back. You don't know at this point though. She's got enough firepower to get out of this club, I think. Did you like how all the uh, banquet tables in this bar look like the Vince Lombardi trophy? Mm-hmm. I did like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, in the Six Bay on the La Serena, uh, we get a little conversation between Maddox and Picard. little information transmitted back and forth. Uh, Maddox learns that Dodge is, in fact, dead, which he had assumed to be the case when the Tal Shiar showed up to destroy his lab. He tells Picard where he can find Soji and uh, and discusses the embedded mom AI, which is what we saw Dodge talking to in that first episode. And uh, and Soji's talked to as well. So That was a great detail. That AI seems, seems to be the governing uh, program that determines whether or not one of these androids gets activated. Right. I dug that quite a bit. The visual language of this scene is uh, is that uh, Gerardi is like off in the corner overhearing this conversation in growing horror. Right. As soon as mention of the sister comes up, uh, we basically cut to Gerardi eavesdropping. Yeah. The androids have been looking for the truth behind the ban. Um, one of the main mysteries of this season and and Maddox thinks the Federation may have been involved in addition to the Tal Shiar so some bad shit is happening yeah uh, but uh, maybe the baddest shit is that uh, after Picard leaves Gerardi wastes him yeah she says she has to atone for something in front of the EMH basically which makes it even more rugged yeah she must have had a much longer hang with Commodore O than we actually got to see. I felt exactly the same way because she starts spouting off about like, I wish they hadn't shown me. You'd never believe if you'd seen what I'd seen and and, and you'd feel differently if you know what I know. Like, who's, yeah. There's only one scene in this entire series where something like that could have happened. And so yeah. the realization that Girardi might have been placed there by O... As a as a mole or a sleeper in her own right, really changes yeah. the game. Changes the game. I mean, like, I think Gerardi's motivation to come having to do with loving Bruce Maddox was explanation of an, uh, enough, and it's it's pretty devastating to see the switcheroo that's happened here. Our SVP Bruce Maddox, Ben. Yeah. He, he achieved his dream, though, right? He got himself a Soong-type android. Yeah, you know, he says something to Gerardi. It's like, we couldn't do it without you, or I think he said something about her being essential. Your contribution was essential. And what do you think that means specifically? Well, I know, because I read the book. <laughs> Lay it on me. The cloning of a positronic neuron was her, like, PhD dissertation mm. and gave him the inspiration for... What came next? Like one thing about that book that like makes Gerardi's character seem a little strange is that she seems so disconnected from the Mars attack mm -hmm. element of it. Like if you could imagine like the like it came out in the news that the uh, architect and engineer that put the World Trade Center up disappeared after 9-11. Right. Like. Like, you know, there's enough conspiracy theories about 9-11 as it is, but if that had happened, people would be fucking mental about right. it. And the fact that she was like the, you know, like her boyfriend was the guy that designed the synths and also disappeared immediately after yeah. the synthetic thing was shut down is like, maybe strains credulity a little bit. Did you like the episode? I'm still with this and I still like the, uh, I still like the episode. I thought that this was a, a... A unique and fun episode. And um, I really liked uh, Frakes' direction. I wonder if they're going to go... They said that uh, at the premiere that the season was kind of broken up into chapters, mm -hmm. which is why they showed the first three episodes as chapter one. And that was all Hanley Culpepper directing. So I wonder how many episodes chapter two is and, how meant, and if they're all directed by Frakes or what. Yeah. Did you like the episode, Adam? 
Yeah, it really did. Ben, was there ever any mention of lore in that book? Because I'm starting to wonder whether or not there is a deus ex machina waiting for us that we (laughs) haven't been introduced to yet. Because like that seems to be when we're talking about all the androids being twinned up, like whatever happened to that body? The last time we saw him, he was he was on the D. Did he die on Viridian? Uh, did he survive and was he put into another drawer somewhere else? Yeah. Is he the puppet master for this whole thing somewhere? I don't know. I mean, with the death of Bruce Maddox, I'm now wondering, like, are the synthetics now totally independent and just running off of the last order they were given without any right. sort of puppet master? And what does that mean? about their mission like should soji uncover the thing her mission is mandating what then who does she take it to right yeah interesting questions yeah i mean that's all to say that that yeah i mean i did like the episode quite a bit it was interesting how little of like this was all a story like we never cut away from our from our five crew people at all basically uh, and I thought the episode was better for it. I think it was a lot of story to tell in 45 minutes, and I don't think there was any room for anything else. Uh, really good story and performances all around. I dug it. You know what we do have room for, Adam? Oh, yeah? There's a couple of Priority One messages. You want to check the inbox with me? Always do. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on Secured Channel. Ben, our first Priority One message is from Andrew, his face palmed, and it is for Ben and Adam. Oh, I get it. It's communication in metaphor. (laughs) Yes. The message goes like this. It me, I Shimoda tillied the asking of my P1 question and ended up just a little bit embarrassed on the first ep of Picard. My incoherence was without honor. But thank you both for your perfect answers. Message goes on. So, who would win in a fight between 10 Defiance, 10 Big D's, and 10 Discos? Also, who was farther gone? Feral Culber or Feral Riker? Well, I think wow. I think I could answer the second one easier than the first. Feral Culber or Feral Riker? I mean, that Riker's beard is the is the tie-breaking element to this whole thing. <laughs> I mean, Riker's just got a great big bushy beard going, and Culber has like the sort of rugged, manly kind of uh, kind of chalky, awesome stubble that like I wish I could have but never will. Yeah, I think that's where I'm at on that question. What about you, Ben? I would put my money on the ten little D's, right? Because it's like more emphatically a warship. Than, uh, than the big D or the right. or and, and the discovery is just old. Like it's probably best in breed, or or just shy of best in breed in its time and place. But it's not in its time and place anymore. I gotta say, and it pains me to say it, when a hella old Klingon bird of prey is the thing that takes you out. Like reputationally, yeah. I don't know if the big D recovers from that. So I guess I'm gonna go like reduction, right? I'm striking through 10 big Ds for that reason. And I think I'm striking yeah. through 10 discos just for like aging technology. I think the answer is obvious, it's 10 defiance. I guess the disco would have an edge if you could convince Stamets to uh, to do the uh, crazy jump around attack pattern. Right. That they do in that one episode of disco. Maybe the disco would have an edge, but uh, that seemed to be a one-and-done kind of deal for him. That's a great call. Like, strategically, you may have an upper hand there if you've got someone like Stamets on your side. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Adam, our next Priority One message uh, here is from Castilian Spanish Siri, and it is for Vichy French Guy. Mm. Oh, boy. <laughs> it goes like this. Your surrender to that vast is muy desoronzo. Speak to me of war crimes, do you? I accuse you of revisionismo historico atroz. Our generalissimo signed a pact of neutrality. He did not cower in fear like you pusillanimous Gallic (laughs) (laughs) sinvergüenzas. Say hola to your wife for me. (laughs) Wow. I'm Uh, really glad you got that one, TBH. 
yeah, that uh, that was hard, and I did a bad job. Also, you did great. <laughs> uh, well, if uh, if you'd like to uh, throw a, a an impression curveball at us, head to maximumfun.org/jumbotron. It's a hundred bucks for a personal message and two hundred for a commercial message. And uh, we'd really appreciate it because uh, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to place ads on this series in time to take advantage of the listener bump we got from uh, Star Trek Picard. So uh, we need we need alternate forms of funding to keep this going. And lucky you, because uh, you're getting what what equates to an advertisement for uh, for the low max fund price. So there you go. What do you think of when you think of male grooming? Maybe it's a sharp haircut and a little bit of product, or a bit of the old beard wax twisted into the ends of a mustache. Maybe it's a shower, a shave, a little spritz of fragrance. Me? I think of shaving my nuts. And not just my nuts, all around those nuts. I'm talking all around those nuts. And this form of male grooming is hard to do when your junk looks like a log of Play-Doh rolled through a dustpan in a barber shop. It's wrinkly, it's wriggly, nothing stays in place, and it's the one area where you don't want to have an accident. That's why I'm glad we're sponsored by the spring cleaning champions at Manscaped. They sent me their brand new Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It's their fifth generation trimmer, featuring two interchangeable next gen skin safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little bit off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. They also sent me an extra large Manscaped t-shirt, which I will never wear, but it was nice of them to do. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. I spent a lot of last week sick in bed. And one thing I was so happy I had when I needed something to eat but didn't really have the energy to cook myself something was Factor Meals. Got a couple of these in the fridge at all times and they are delicious, fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted meals. And they're ready to go in just about two minutes. And this is convenience food that is actually tasty and full of real ingredients and not hyper-processed crap. And they got you covered all throughout the day. They got pancakes, smoothies, grab-and-go bites, and uh, you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause and reschedule deliveries at any time. So head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use code trek50 to get 50% off. That's code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Ben. What's that, Adam? Did you discover yourself and Edward Larkin? Edward Larkin! I did. I'm giving it to Elnor. I love the way that he played his 
inability to act in a deceptive manner. He's just like culturally, it's culturally so alien to him. And I really thought that that was fun. And I feel like he is just coiling up like a snake in this episode. Like you can tell he wants to fucking cut somebody's head off, but he doesn't get his opportunity because other things go down. I love that background acting he does when Seven uh, appears and like he's got the sword ready. And you actually see to the extreme left side of the frame, Picard like waves him off. Yeah. And uh, and I love when he gets the two pistols and goes up to the the other women that are providing muscle for uh, for Fajazzle. Uh It's just like his swagger is really fun and good. And uh, he seemed like he was having a lot of fun in this episode. He's got that lethal Lenny energy where he's sort <laughs> of like fish out of water and not contextually wise, but but lethal in every other way. I think that's going to be a fun thing to experience going forward. Yeah. Uh, Did you have an Edward Larkin? I referred to this earlier, and I promise I'm not putting my thumb on the scale of how this is going to come out of the wash at the end of the season. But, I mean, Santiago Cabrera, again... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, is that a he, hat trick for him from you? It's a literal hat trick with two feathers sticking out of it, man. <laughs> I I don't know how you take a person seriously wearing that hat. And yet, it's like I didn't even see it. Yeah. I think he's a special actor. That hat would wear almost anybody and he wore it. Yeah, exactly. I can't give my Edward Larkin to to anyone else he's he's killing it right now big ups and to think that he walked around that uh that star trek party unnoticed because he wasn't in basically the first three episodes like god it would have been cool to hang out with him and figure out what his deal was because uh really really great actor big fan really enjoying his work uh are we going to enjoy the next episode ben it's episode six of Star Trek Picard, what did the preview indicate to you? Well, we saw the artifact. Uh, it seems like that's where they're headed at the end of this. And uh, it's kind of a behind enemy lines type deal from from what mm-hmm. I gathered. It seems like they're there on a sort of unsanctioned, uh, in a sort of unsanctioned way. They don't, they don't pass through customs or uh, passport control. They are trying to reach Soji, uh, who seems to be in some kind of gas chamber and maybe punching her way out. So maybe this is the episode she gets activated. Whoa, yeah. And uh, I caught a glimpse of Locutus in the uh, in the little preview, so. I was wondering if that was him. I, I tried to uh, freeze frame it a couple of times and it, it was ambiguous to me. You're, you're pretty sure it's him, huh? Seemed like it. Wow. Or intentionally confusing, so. This just turns into a, a show where everyone dresses up in costumes every episode. <laughs> Picard's like, ah, oh, this is this is the one walk down the staircase in front of everyone I was really hoping to avoid. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm really looking forward to it, and it will be next week on The Greatest Discovery. Let's leave it with Robs from here. Thanks, Robs. The Greatest Discovery is a Maximum Fun podcast, hosted by Adam Pranica and Ben Harrison. The show is produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is produced by Friend of DeSoto and YouTube sensation Adam Ragusia. The Greatest Discovery is a podcast that's made possible by the support of listeners like you. To make sure that we continue to make episodes, visit MaximumFun.org join and pledge your support. By doing so, you'll gain access to all of the Maximum Fun bonus content, including our bonus episodes. If you want to chat about the show on various forms of social media, just search for our discussion groups, or use the hashtag GreatestDiscovery. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam's found at CutForTime, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks! MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.